and uh, all of them sort of build upon and lead up to what we're going to be talking about today, God's purpose for the church, that we be unshakable. Uh, let me just pray before I begin. Father God, I give you thanks this morning for your word, for your scripture, that we can uh, recite it, that we can read it, that we can sing it, that we can study it. So, Father, I would just ask that you would take your word this morning and your scripture and uh, open our hearts, open our minds to what you would have us see and understand, uh, and take each one of our hearts individually, Lord, and uh, just plant the seed that your Holy Spirit would have planted this morning to see uh, our lives transformed by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been on this series, which is going to go until nearly December, um, God's desire for the church, that the church has this great cosmic purpose, it was a mystery hidden for ages, that we will display the wisdom of God, <clears throat> excuse me, before the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places as well as on earth, and we were sort of asking ourselves this question, you know, how are we going to do that, <laughs> you know, looking around at us. Uh, this is some kind of plan that God has uh, to reveal his wisdom through us, but then to explore that further, to explore what God's desire is for the church, now that he's revealed this mystery of the church, to reveal what God desires for the church. So we talked about that purpose, we talked about God's desire that we exercise our spiritual gifts, uh, we talked last week about how God desires that we be reconciled and that we be carrying forward the ministry of reconciliation within the church and be interceding for those and today, we're going to deal with God's desire for the church, that his church be unshakable. And uh, the text that I'm going to start with, the text that we're looking at is Hebrews 12, and we're going to be looking from 18 to 29, but I'm going to start with the unshakable bit at the end, and then go back through it and look at the whole text as to how we get to this place of being unshakable. So in verse 26 of Hebrews 12, it says, At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, all of those scriptures that we read and all of those scriptures that we were singing about were all written for a purpose, and this scripture was also written for a purpose. And so you can imagine the writer of the book of Hebrews in rough, you know, somewhere around 50 A.D., you know, between 50 and maybe 60 A.D., and he's writing to the church. He's writing specifically to uh, the Hebrews, the, the Jewish church. And you can imagine how shaken their world was, okay? So he's writing this scripture and the text that we're going to be looking at for a purpose to give them a sense of being unshakable, that despite the fact that Rome is hunting them, despite the fact that their own people are hunting them, despite the fact that, um, you know, they're almost at war with the Pharisees and the, and the institution of the day and that they're being persecuted, that they should be grateful because... God's intent and God's purpose and God's desire for the church is that it be unshakable. And when we think about 
the ways in which we can be shakable first. So what I want to touch on is the ways in which we're shakable and then look at this picture that the writer of Hebrews has painted for us of how God intends for us to be unshakable. So there's two ways at which we're shakable that I'll look at this morning, two problems that we have. The first of all is that we're in this shakable creation, that the stuff we've already talked about and prayed about this morning is the reality of this world that we live in. I have a friend um, from uh, the church that I went to in Guelph, um, Andrew, and He's a young Catholic agnostic, if you can picture that, in his 20s, and he beat the odds, and he came to Christ later in life at university, believe it or not. You know, most people don't go to university to find Christ, but he did. And so he set his heart and his life towards God, and he married a a Christian woman, and he started a family, and uh, he entered into his master's studies in languages, and he uh, applied for a, a life as a mission. He applied to become a missionary in the Ukraine, uh, his sort of family background. And so you have this brilliant man, and God shaken his family and all his friends and shaken the whole church and shaken the whole world, his world, by illness, right? Leukemia. Sorry. So then, excuse me, sorry, whoa. Then, he has two years of remission. And we're all going through these same things. So I I tell this story as an example. He has two years of remission. He finishes his master's. And then a couple of weeks ago, bad blood again. Leukemia is back. So he's shaken to the core. So that's my story. That's Andrew's story. We've heard some of the other stories. That we, the reality is we live in this shaken creation. Right, And so whether it's illness, whether it's employment, whether it's finances, whether it's marriage, whether it's relationship, whether it's failure of some sort, whether it's abuse, we are dealing with this problem that we live in a shakable creation. We live in a shakable reality. These things that we might hope in shake, and they shake us and they aren't steady, and they're not firm, and we can't put our trust in them because they can be taken away. And so what do we do with that when we're shaken by illness, when we're shaken by job loss, when we're shaken by financial trouble, when we're shaken when marriages break apart or relationships break apart in our family, or we're shaken by addictions, or we're shaken by abuse, we're shaken by the consequences of our sin and the sin of others? When does the shaking stop? When Do we get to this kingdom that the writer is writing about? He says there's an unshakable kingdom. And when it gets shaken, God's going to shake it once more, and all the shaken stuff is going to disappear, and then there's an unshakable kingdom that remains. How do we get there? And we have a second problem, because the way this whole thing starts out is we cannot approach God with this problem. You would think, well, we want to approach God with this, but the second problem we have is we have, at the beginning, a shakable relationship with God. And if you go back up to Hebrews uh, 18, it talks about this relationship with God and where it started and how God began to work out the problem. First of all, by showing us the problem that everything is shakable, including our relationship to him, and then solving that problem. And in this text, you're going to find things. There's two mountains, and there's two covenants, and there's two bloods, And there's two kingdoms. 
And God is showing us the shakable nature of the first and the unshakable nature of the second. And so as you go through this, keep this in mind that as, you know, whenever I talk about Scripture, it's always sort of painting a picture. But in this case, God is painting like a mural with this one. (laughs) Because there's the mountain and the covenant and the blood and the kingdom and all of these things that are getting painted in this mural. And the purpose of which, the reason that the writer of Hebrews is writing this, and the reason that it's preserved for us by the Holy Spirit, the reason that God is speaking this into our life, in addition with all the other, you know, scriptures that were read this morning, and and a hundred more, is because the purpose is that God has shown us that he desires that his church be unshakable. That he's made his church unshakable. So keep that in mind. So originally... Our relationship with God is shakable. It says in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What's this talking about? This is talking about the first mountain. It's talking about Mount Sinai. It's talking about God being present in this shakable creation. God being present before a people who are unworthy of his presence and the giving of the law and the first covenant. And so we have this picture of Mount Sinai where the law was given. And it's a picture, as the writer of Hebrews captures here, it's a picture of smoke and fire and terror. It's a moment in history when God came down and he stood on a mountain before his people to address his own people from the mountain and the picture is dangerous. If even an animal touches this mountain, it will die. And the people heard the word of God and everything was shaking and everything was smoking and everything was fiery and they were afraid because God was unapproachable. If we try to approach God in our own law keeping, if we try to approach God in our own righteousness, this is the picture that we have. Our relationship with God at the beginning is very shaky, okay? We cannot approach God in confidence in this way, in our own righteousness, in our own rule-keeping. If we even touch the mountain that God is standing on, we will die. And so in this picture, you stay away. You keep your distance from God. You can't bear to hear God speak another command. Even Moses is afraid And if you try to come to God and approach God with your own religion and your own good works, or you try to convince God that you're good enough and he should just accept you the way you are because, hey, I'm a pretty good person and I do good things, God, why aren't I good enough? Or you think that, you know, you've done all the Sunday school rules and you've served in the church and you've done all these things and that you've measured up somehow. When you approach God in this way, he's unapproachable. When we approach God in that sense where we think that we're good enough, where we think that we've done enough to measure up to God's work, when we approach God in that way, it only reveals that we don't deserve to get close. It's a volcano. It's smoke. It's fire. It's death. And so we're stuck in these two problems. We have this world that can easily shake us. We're a broken and shaken people by all these things that shake us, and we can't cope with it, and we also can't approach God for any help. And so without a different arrangement, this isn't going to work. The whole thing is shaky. It's tenuous. But God's plan is to accomplish his desire, is to make us unshakable. And so we continue to read that that is not the mountain that we may now approach. The writer paints another picture in his words of Mount Zion. 
And if you're a believer in Jesus, and if you have Jesus, and if you have put your faith in Jesus, then I have incredible news for you that the mountain that we come to now is not Mount Sinai. The mountain we come to now is Mount Zion. You don't approach God through the law, but you approach God through grace. And so God is painting a picture here for us of how he has fixed this first problem that we have. That we no longer tremble at the foot of Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and trembling and earthquake. In Romans 3.21 puts it this way, a Christian has righteousness apart from the law, not by law keeping, not by rule keeping, but through Jesus, that's our righteousness in our place. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and he died the perfect death as a perfect sacrifice that we couldn't satisfy, so that the law that we couldn't keep could be met, and to bring us into a new covenant in his shed blood. And so we have a mountain one, Sinai, which is the first covenant, which was a shaky covenant. It was a law that we had to keep, and we couldn't keep it. We were on shaky foothold there. And mountain two is Mount Zion. It's a new covenant. It's a covenant that will be kept permanently by Christ. And it's in his shed blood. It's a brand new way to relate to a holy God. And so we have this unshakable new covenant. Look at this second mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect with God. He is listed with God. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow, what a different mountain. What a different picture, right? First mountain, God all by himself at the top. Smoke, fire, terror, earthquakes. Second mountain, New Jerusalem, a city, angels gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, of those who are enrolled in heaven, and God himself is there, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and Jesus, everyone together on the mountain in community. Jesus there, the mediator of a new covenant and sprinkled in the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the writer of Hebrews painting here? Man, he knows his people need to be unshaken. So he paints a picture of two different mountains. He says there's this mountain which is terrifying. There's this mountain which is awesome. Communion with God with angels, with Jesus, all together on the mountain, in the city. And then he says again that Jesus is there, the mediator of a new covenant. So it's a new mountain and it's a new covenant. It's not this shaky covenant under the law where we're on this you know, shaky foothold of not being able to measure up to God's rules or alternatively coming to God with our own rules and thinking that we measure up that way. Now we have this new covenant, and it's a new covenant that's sprinkled in blood. And so this mural just keeps going, if you imagine. It's it's not just a picture of two mountains. It's mountains and city, and now there's this covenant and the blood, the mural, as he's writing, as he's painting here with words, it just keeps going. He says, sprinkle with a blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. Where is the writer going here? Well, he's digging deep. And, and the reason I picked this scripture is because there's so much going on here. And the writer of Hebrews here in this text, he's trying to dig down foundations deeper and deeper and deeper to give the people who are reading and us an unmistakable sense that God wants us 
rooted in him, that, that the foundation, that the kingdom that we're called to is unshakable, that he wants his church to be unshakable, he wants his people to be unshakable. And so the mountain, the city, the covenant, and now the blood. And where is he digging here? What is this that the, we're sprinkled with a blood that speaks better words than the blood of Abel? Well, the writer here is referring, of course, to the book of Genesis. And so what he's doing to dig really down deep into the bedrock is he's recalling us all the way back to the very beginning of our relationship with God. He's recalling us all the way back to the time after Adam's sin. And mankind is trying to make his way in the world without the Garden of Eden or kicked out of the Garden. And you remember what happened with Adam. He had a brother, right? Not with Adam, with Abel. Remember what happened with Abel, right? He had a brother. Who's his brother? Cain, right? And what did Cain do? Killed him. Exactly. So the writer of Hebrews is going back to the very beginning. And he's saying, you remember Abel. You remember Cain. You remember Abel's blood. What was it about Abel's blood, right? After the murder, after Cain killed his own brother, even though Cain had hidden the body, even though nobody knew what had happened to Abel, God came and spoke to Cain, and he said, what? Where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. I hid that. It's gone. Right? That's what he thinks. But then God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's Genesis 4.10. So what is this blood of Abel? What is it saying to God? God is a God of justice. He hates murder. God says, Cain, even though you've hidden him, even though no one else knows, I know what you've done, and Abel's blood is crying out to me. It's crying out to me from the ground, and you can just imagine what the blood of Abel says. It says, guilty. The blood of Abel is speaking a word, but the word is guilty. The word is sinner. The word is, I want justice. The word is punishment, right? So even if we haven't murdered somebody, even if we've, you know, we've just disobeyed and offended God in so many other ways, and you know, we've been filled with greed, and we've been filled with jealousy, and we have lied, and we've lusted, and we've had pride in our heart, and we've you know, chased after other things other than God, and we've hated people even, which Jesus has told us is murder, and we've set our hearts on the wrong things, even if we can hide all of that from other people, even if nobody else knows about it, we feel it in our hearts, right? We're on shaky ground because of who we are, because of this sin. This sin problem has to be dealt with, right? This shaky relationship with God is not a good place to stand. And so the text here says that that has to be dealt with, that God knows that we're on shaky ground because of that. And he says, I got, I've got a solution for that. There's another blood other than the blood of Abel, and that blood speaks a better word. So go back to our text, and what is, he, what is this guy digging into? What is this writer digging into here? He's a mediator of a new covenant and sprinkled with the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What word can you imagine the blood of Christ speaks? Forgiven, right? There's a different blood. It's the blood of Jesus that speaks over us. Accepted, cleansed, loved, adopted, born again. That's what the blood of Jesus speaks. So part of our hope, part of our unshakableness, this is sort of meta, but 
part of our unshakableness, part of my message this morning is even this text itself. It's the fact that we're able to learn this from this text should be right now building up with you a sense of unshakableness of the mountain, of the city, of the new covenant, of the new blood. We learn these things and we realize that God has a message that he's saying over and over and over again that the writer of Hebrews is trying to instill into us that God's desire for us is that we not be in that old shakable relationship under that old shakable covenant existing in this shakable creation with all the things that shake our lives. We're not supposed to be existing there. We're supposed to be existing in another reality on another mountain in another city under another covenant, not with the blood of Abel speaking guilt over our lives, but with the blood of Jesus speaking forgiveness over our lives. That's what the blood of Jesus speaks. And so this mural just goes on and on and on. And so when you feel condemned over your past sins, and it feels like those actions seem to be crying out to God to condemn you, then you can remind yourself of this unshakable truth. Your relationship with God is not set upon your actions. It's not set upon your rule-keeping. It's not set upon your innocence. Your relationship with God, when you put your faith in Christ, is set upon the blood of Jesus. And it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have an unshakable new covenant. Secondly, how do we deal with this new creation, that God presents an unshakable new creation? And I'll read once again. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates a removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What's God talking about here? Now he's talking about, he's talking about light. He's talking about this, right? He's not talking about mountains and covenants and these pictures in, in the sky. He's not talking about about blood of Abel and blood of Jesus, he's saying that there is a shaking coming, a shaking of creation, that, that this kingdom is not the final kingdom. The kingdom that we see right now isn't final. And so we forget sometimes how awesome God is, that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, just God speaking, just his presence was smoke and fire, and the whole earth shook, right? Earthquakes, tectonic plates shifted and moved around at the sound of God speaking. And the writer here says, in Hebrews, as he goes on, he says, that's nothing compared to what's coming. You think the shaking at Mount Sinai was something. Wait till you see the shaking that is coming. He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the last day. You know, and it's fascinating, as I was sort of thinking about this, how obsessed our culture is with the world ending. You know, at any given time, any season, there's some movie about how the world will end, Right? And it's never a nice ending, is it? Right? The movie is never that the world ends by being flooded with maple syrup and pancakes. Right? That's never the script, you know? Or the world ends by a massive, simultaneous overdose of bacon. Like, wouldn't that be a good way to go? You know? Or everybody golfs themselves to death. Okay, these are all male examples because I'm a guy. You know? You know, the end of the world is you're locked in all the shopping malls in the world or something. I don't know. There's the Try to come up with one. But it's always a horrible end. <laughs> you know, the examples, the examples that they have, the scripts, it's always horrible, right? You know, aliens are popular. There's aliens invading. 
you know, and the, you know, so these guys come and destroy the world, or there's a comet hitting the earth, or there's a plague that wipes out everybody on the earth, right? Anybody watch these movies? Anybody seen some of these end-of-the-world movies, right? There's tidal waves, plagues, comets. It's always something bad, right? Or, or the big one, what's the big new one now? Zombies, right? Zombies take over, right? You know, these things can happen. Zombies, you know. Or huge monsters coming out of the sea, right? You know, Pacific Rim, good. Thank goodness we have these huge robots that fight them. But <laughs> I'm waiting for the movie that's a combination of all of these things. Aliens are coming on a comet with a plague that creates zombies that takes over the world or something, you know. But what is it about this? And I spoke a little bit about this in earlier messages, about the things that are in our heart and in movies, you know, that speak to something hidden in our heart. What's hidden in our heart here? Deep down, what do we fear? What shakes us? It's coming to our end, right? We go to see these movies because it's nice and safe. We pay our $15, we sit in the theater, we see it on the screen, and two hours later it's over and we can laugh and go home. And so we face our fear in this kind of safe environment. But these movies are popular because they are touching something deep within us. They're touching the reality that we are afraid of the end that we're terrified of the end and an awareness, a deep-down awareness, a dread that we know that this world isn't just going to go on forever the same way, that it is going to come to an end. And Hebrews here says that this foreboding, that reality in our hearts is based on something very real. There's going to be an end to the world. Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to eliminate everything that's opposed to him. All sin, all wickedness, all evil, everyone who isn't following him, there's going to be a shaking of the world that removes everything that is temporal and temporary, and it's going to leave behind only the eternal, right? That's what that means there when it says, he says he's going to shake all the things that are shaken, that is, all things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken remain. Man, I love this picture. When God comes to speak again, everything's going to shake, everything's going to shatter, everything's going to fall away. The illusion that we think is real is going to disappear, and only the eternal will remain, and when he speaks, it's not just going to be a few tectonic plates shifting. It's going to be the destruction of everything. Everything that we might have put our hope in. 1 Corinthians 7.31 says, This world in its present form is passing away. Revelation 21, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, says the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. These things are going. These things are passing. Our hope cannot rest on anything in this creation. Because this second problem, once we've dealt with this first problem where we can now approach God thanks to the blood of Jesus, this second problem still remains because we still live in this kingdom, don't we? We still live here where it's shaking, that this kingdom is already breaking forth and the world is already shaking. It hasn't finally shaken, but it's already shaking. Our jobs shake us when we lose them. Our health shakes us when we lose it. Our ability shakes us when it fails us. Our relationships shake us when they break down. And when our health and our relationships or any of these other things, when they shake us in this creation, we find out just how much hope we had in them rather than a hope in the thing that is unshaken. Our hope has to lie deep beneath those things. Our hope lies all around those things. Our hope lies in a new creation, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Because all the things that are shakeable are going to shake away. And all that's going to be left is what is unshaken. 
There's going to be a new creation, a new kingdom that's going to remain long after the hurt's gone. Long after our jobs are no longer needed anymore. Right? Long after our relationships are going to be made whole in a whole other kingdom of heaven. This kingdom, this unshakable reality is going to continue far past, beyond whatever it is that we're experiencing right now. So whether it's the illness or the broken relationship or the addiction or the shame or the failure or whatever it is that's shaking us, Hebrews says, thank God for the fact that we belong to an unshakable kingdom. These things shake us right now, but they're just temporary. I'm not making light of them. They hurt. But the writer of Hebrews says one of the practical ways, application now in the last six minutes, one of the practical ways that we deal with this shakable reality, because we all know it's shakable, first way we deal with it is we have an unshakable relationship with Jesus Christ. We approach God in confidence on the mountain with the angels, and we walk into the throne room covered by a blood, sprinkled by a blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of our guilt. That's the first thing. Second of all, we keep our eyes on what is unshakable, on the eternal, on the reality of this. Of this all of this shakable stuff is going to end, both the good and the bad. It's all temporary. Our hope lies deep, deep, deep beneath this reality. Our feet rest on something far firmer. So the first thing then is, therefore, Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the first thing you do is you receive this kingdom that cannot be shaken. What does that mean to receive it? Because it's right now. The one thing I wanted to point out here, if you go back, is that when he's talking about this second mountain, he's not saying that it's coming later. He says, but now. Now I've got to find it. But you have come to Mount Zion. Right? Do you see what it says there? It doesn't say you will come to Mount Zion. It says right now you have come to Mount Zion. So the first thing that you do is you receive this kingdom. You live in this reality that you have come to Mount Zion already. We're not waiting for some future kingdom. The kingdom is emerging already. We are already able to enter into this presence with God. That we already have the promise of Mount Zion. And to be grateful for receiving that kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I'm encouraged. This is where I'm encouraged because I see this reality lived out already, even though I've only been here a month. I see this reality lived out already in the family here at Lakeside. So many people are already living this out because they are struck by illness. They are struck by job loss. They are struck by bad news. They are struck by broken relationships. They are struck by broken families. They are shaken by addiction. And yet, day after day, week after week, all I hear is their faith in God, their trust that God is good, their faith that they place in an unshakable kingdom and an unshakable covenant. So that's the first thing, to receive that kingdom. Make it real in here and in here. Receive it and know it and trust it, believe in it. That's something that you can put your feet on. That's something you can put roots down in. The reality that God's desire for his church is that you be unshakable and that he communicates to you that he wants you to know that you're unshakable. 
Secondly, that's first practical. Secondly, maybe even more practically in terms of activity, what the writer of Hebrews says then, worship in response. He says, therefore, because of this kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? The word there for worship, actually, is uh, letruin or letruo in the Greek. And what it means is to serve. This is a worship of service. And so it says, let us offer to God or let us get engaged with. If this is true, therefore, if this is true that we have this unshakable reality, even though the world is shaking around us, even though my circumstances are shaking, If this is true that we have this unshakable reality and we have this relationship with God, the new covenant, the new mountain, the new city, the new blood, then act that way. Serve God in worship. Give thanks and worship him in service. Be in the activity of serving that new kingdom. If the reality is is that you belong to that unshakable kingdom, then act out that kingdom. In the midst of the shaking kingdom around us, we find our stability and our anchor in worship. And I've heard that too from a dozen of you in this congregation. When life hits you from left field and you're shaken to the core, where do you go? You go to worship. You go to thanksgiving. Where do your feet find their foothold? in service, in Christian love, in mercy, in generosity, serving in the church, serving your brothers and sisters, taking someone out for a coffee, sharing your life with them, right? God wants his church to be unshakable. First way he makes it unshakable is in this truth. He lands this truth like a mountain and says, this is where you belong. This is the blood that covers you. And then secondly, he wants you to be unshakable And in addition to the reaction to that truth, he says, worship me, serve me. Andrew Rosalowski didn't realize how unshakable he was until his life was shaken. We don't realize how unshakable our relationship is with Christ until our life is shaken. And it's all going to shake, and it's eventually all going to shake away. But that's what reveals to us where we turn that our foundation is actually in Christ, that our foundation is actually in God. My mom, same story. When my dad died four years ago, almost four years ago now, she didn't realize how unshakable she was until dad was gone. Because when dad was there, she depended on him for a lot of things. When our health is there, we depend on our health for a lot of things. When our job is there, we depend on our job for a lot of things. When our family is there, we depend on our family for a lot of things. But when those things get shaken, God says, look, you have a foundation that goes far deeper. And so we realize, Andrew realizes, my mom realizes how unshakable she really is, knowing this truth, and then worshiping God with it. You want to get your feet back underneath you? Worship God. Give thanks. Study this truth. Share it with others. Serve in the kingdom that you belong to. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning that we can come now to your table in communion. 
I thank you that your blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That we come to share in your broken body and your shed blood. To remember what you did for us. To remember that you have made a way to get onto the mountain. That you've taken a, a, a covenant we couldn't keep and kept it for us. That you have opened the door for us to have fellowship with God again and with each other. And so, Father, I would just pray that we would take this truth into our hearts, that we would take this reality into our hearts, that we would live out the fact that as Christians who've come to faith in Christ, we're unshakable. The world will shake us. The world will ultimately shake away. And only the eternal will remain our relationship with you for eternity. We pray these things in Christ Jesus. Amen.